Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Miguel de Unamuno, in his book, Tragic Sense of Life, begins by considering the origins of philosophies. And I'm deliberately putting that in the plural because he will talk about philosophy as a singular, but it's not a single thing that we can refer to and make absolute claims about. Although that is part of the history of philosophy, people indeed doing that like Kant, who he brings up in the very first chapter. And what we need to understand from the start is that philosophy refers to multiple matters. It's not just a single thing that you can wrap your head around, provide a definition of. He considers a few people's definitions like Cicero's in this work and then says, well, that works for a certain kind of philosophizing. And we need to understand that philosophy is at all times a human activity and a human product. And when we think about what philosophy means, this is not something that he's directly saying here in the text, but I think he's presupposing this. There is the the action or acts of engaging in philosophy. There is all the other things that are coming from our background and our desires that are feeding into philosophy. There are sort of ends that we're aiming at. There is the history of all sorts of philosophical texts that are written down, which we can pick up and start reading and in a certain way connect with people in ancient or medieval or early modern times, cross cultures. There's all these different things. And then there are all sorts of philosophical systems or approaches. And quite often people want to narrow what philosophy is so as to make it much more easy to teach and easy for them to understand. But Unamuno is coming at this from a different perspective, which says there are philosophies and we can look into them and we can take on parts of them if we want to. We can take on entire systems and say, that's what I'm going to be. And we can also think about our own activity. We can engage in some reflection about what we're doing. And so he is going to talk about the concrete human being. And when we say concrete, you know, another great translation, the very title of the first chapter, the man of flesh and bone, the human being who actually exists, who has what the existentialists would later call facticity, who is born in a certain time, who has an age, a gender, a set of predilections for some things and against other things. And he goes on and he says, the person of flesh and bone, the person who is born, suffers, dies, above all who dies, the person who eats and drinks and plays and sleeps and thinks and will. The person who has seen and heard the brother, the sibling, the real brother. And he says, there's another thing which is also called humanity, the subject of all sorts of ideas, the zone politico and the political animal of Aristotle, the social contractor of Rousseau the homo economicus of the Manchester school, the homo sapiens of Linnaeus, or if you like, the vertical animal. And then he says, this is really a great line, a man of neither here nor there, neither of this age nor of another, who has neither sex nor country, who is in brief merely an idea, that is to say a 
no man. And a lot of people philosophize as if they are no man, the nobody, right? The, the nobody he's referring to of the Odyssey, which was a, a lie when Odysseus told it, right? And he says that the person that we have to do with is the person of flesh and bone. I, you, reader of mine, the other person over there and all who walk solidly on the earth. And he tells us, this is very interesting. This concrete person is at the same time, the subject and the supreme object of philosophy, whether self-styled philosophers like it or not. So that is a really important point. It's not just rhetoric here of trying to you know, make a nice sentence. We are the subject. We are the one who engages in philosophy, and we have to take account of the fact that there wouldn't be any philosophy were it not for concrete human being. Philosophy is not done by some ideal human being. As a matter of fact, if you think about like Plato's forms, right? And you've got this ideal human that perhaps we're all copies of. You can ask yourself, what does that, what does that guy do? You know, or we could just as well make it a woman. What, is, what does that person do, right? They don't do anything that we engage in in real life, like, you know, eating and drinking and being attracted to people and fighting with them and all those sorts of things, earning a living. He doesn't have to earn a living. He's in the world of the forms. Maybe he philosophizes. Well, if he does, he hasn't produced any that we know of, right? Plato never says any peep about him. And so we can say something similar about philosophy in general. It is produced by actual living human beings who are its subjects. And that's not just famous people like Schopenhauer or Kant. That's you and me as well. And we are the supreme object of philosophy as well. Philosophy also touches on other things, the laws of thought. The laws of thought of who? Human beings. Philosophy touches on the cosmos. The cosmos for who? Human beings, right? So whether we're doing ethical philosophy or political philosophy, or we're doing other things like epistemology and metaphysics and logic, we're dealing with human beings. So this is a very important point that he makes. He also tells us a few other things that are fleshing this out. He tells us that we've made a mistake quite often in assuming that the, what's really distinctive about us is reasoning, rationality. And he says, this is some, some wonderful lines in here. The human is said to be a reasoning animal. I do not know why he has not also been defined as an affective or feeling animal. Now you could say, well, I know why, because Aristotle or Plato or the Stoics or pick whoever you like in Western philosophy looked at human beings and they saw that we had our feelings in common with the animals, our affective side, what Aristotle calls the orectike, the desirous or affective part. We have that in common with, you know, lynxes and earthworms and pick whatever you like. We even have some things in common with plants. You know, we engage in respiration and reproduction and some sort of growth and digestion. And Unamuno goes on and he says, yes. But he says, perhaps what differentiates us from other animals is actually feeling rather than reason. Depends on how we're gonna understand these things. And he's got a sort of throwaway line here. More often, I have seen a cat reason than laugh or weep. Perhaps it weeps or laughs inwardly, but then perhaps also inwardly, the crab resolves equations of the second degree. And the idea is that the human being our feelings are different than those of other animals. They, they are also analogous. You know, when the cat gets angry or to use the song chorus, when the dog bites, when the bee stings, right? 
from that Sound of Music song. There's something like anger going on there, but it's not quite exactly the same as human anger. And perhaps sadness isn't the same, and perhaps even joy isn't the same. Why should that not be equally distinctive of human beings? We are not only a reasoning animal, but an affective animal. He also tells us, now here we come back to the very important point for philosophy, Feeling is not just an output or a consequence or a result of taking philosophical positions. Feeling is what drives it. Feeling is a cause. He gives an example here. He says, philosophy answers to our need of forming a complete and unitary conception of the world and life. And as a result of this conception, a feeling which gives birth to an inward attitude and even to outward action. But the fact is that this feeling, instead of being a consequence of this conception, is a cause of it. Our philosophy, that is our mode of understanding or not understanding the world and life, springs from our feeling towards life itself something what we might call a fundamental mood, right? Life, like everything effective, has roots in subconsciousness, perhaps even in unconsciousness. So we're not really entirely aware of why we philosophize in the way that we do. He goes on and he says, it's not our ideas that make us optimists or pessimists. It's our optimism or pessimism of physiological or perhaps pathological origin as much the one as the other that makes our ideas. And so what we have here is similar to, for example, Nietzsche saying that, you know, philosophy, the origins of it really lie in biography, in the person who is doing the philosophy and what they're driven by, what they desire, what they're averse to, what their fundamental mood inhabiting their world world is. He also goes on, and this is in chapter two, he's got a very interesting point here when he's talking about what it means to be a rational animal. He tells us that philosophy is a product of the humanity of each philosopher, and each philosopher is a man of flesh and bone. Okay, so far so good. What's he adding here? There's something new. A person who addresses himself to other men of flesh and bone like himself. Let him do what he will, he philosophizes not with the reason only, but with the will, with the feelings, with the flesh, and with the bones, with the whole soul and the whole body. It is the person who philosophizes. So we philosophize not just as these isolated monads, you know, working out our own dynamics or, or affectivities. We're also doing it in relation to other people which means that they have an influence on us and we have an influence on them. And we're not just trying to reach ourselves, but also to reach them. And this is true even for somebody like Descartes. If you think about his famous suspension of belief and the methodological doubt where perhaps there's no other being in the universe except this evil demon or maybe God or stuff like that. He is not saying that because he really 100% believes that. That is getting him to a place where he can talk to other human beings about how they ought to use their minds. So these are some very important points. We can also talk about how Unamuno thinks of the activities or products of philosophy. I've already mentioned that, quoting that thing, that he thinks that philosophy aims at providing us with a complete and unitary conception of the world and of life. This does not mean that we ever truly attain that, in part because the world you know, is much vaster than us, and so is the life that we're living. But that's what it's aiming at. He also calls it, a little bit later, a work of integration and synthesis. That's another way of talking about how we get to this more or less complete viewpoint. 
He's got, he's got another really great discussion in chapter two about the origins of philosophy as well. He says, in the starting point of philosophy, the real starting point, which is not theoretical, it's actually practical, there is a wherefore. The philosopher philosophizes for something more than for the sake of philosophizing. Philosophy is not a self-contained discipline. It's done for the sake of and driven by something other than just the activity of philosophizing. It's always practical to some degree. And he, he goes on and he says, as the philosopher is a person before they're a philosopher, you have to live before you can philosophize. And in fact, you philosophize in order to live. Usually one philosophizes either in order to resign oneself to life or seek some finality in it or distract oneself and forget one's griefs or for pastime and amusement. And we could go on and on and on with all the other reasons why people engage in philosophy, which could just also be inertia, you know? I've been doing philosophy now, I mean, myself, I've been studying philosophy professionally for 30 years and teaching it for over 20. And if somebody were to ask me, well, why do you do it? I could quite reasonably say, you know, I don't know anymore. I just keep on doing it out of inertia and I enjoy what I do. So that's not actually the case, but that would be a, an interesting response, would it not? So philosophy is always guided by some sort of wherefore. Understanding that wherefore helps us to understand that philosophy. And these all tie in together. The last thing I need to point out is that Unamuno rejects what he calls pedantry and truth for truth's sake and a kind of fake history of systems. This is a great line here. He says, in most of the histories of philosophy that I know, and this is actually still the case in large part today, except for those that swing way over to the other extreme and then commit the genetic fallacy by attributing everything to, you know, where the philosopher came from or, you know, what his or her preoccupations were. He says, philosophical systems are presented to us as if growing out of one another spontaneously and their authors, the philosophers, appear as mere pretexts. Just sort of like, you know, they're the ones who happen to be there to think these thoughts at the time. The inner biography of the philosophers, of the people who philosophized, occupies a secondary place. But it's precisely this inner biography that explains for us most things. That's a good point right there. And he rejects any sort of, you know, truncation of philosophy, any shortening of it. He's got a great discussion here about professional philosophers. He says, there are in fact people who appear to think only with the brain or whatever may be the specific thinking organ, while others think with all the body, all the soul, with the blood, the marrow, the bones, the heart, the lungs, the belly, the life. And he says, the people who think only with the brain develop into definition mongers. Isn't that a great catchphrase there? Definition mongers. I think they would probably also include a lot of the actually guys and many other people who are essentially pedants and don't realize that they are that case. He says, they become the professionals of thought. And do you know what a professional is? Do you know what the product of differentiation of labor is? He says, you know, they're like professional boxers. They're really good at what they do but they're not good at other things. He says, if a philosopher is not a man, he is anything but a philosopher. He is above all a pedant, and a pedant is a caricature of a man. The cultivation of any branch of science may be a work of differentiated specialization, and even so, only within narrow limits and restrictions. But philosophy, like poetry, is a work of integration and synthesis, or else it is merely pseudo-philosophical erudition. So he's rejecting a viewpoint on how to do philosophy, 
and activities of philosophy that are far too myopic and truncated. He's also rejecting histories and systematizations of philosophy as such that ignore the living concrete element of human beings within philosophy. So this gives you an idea of where Unamuno is coming from. This is probably something that, that you have to get down and probably buy into in order to appreciate what else is going on in his book. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.